we have some surprising insights for why people become impulsive spenders. How much does the word impulsive describe your spending habits? Are there gender and age differences? Let's give you some perspective to find out. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. Did you know that 96% of Americans spend impulsively in stores or that 89% of Americans impulsively spend online? How about the air quote, drastic differences between men and women with men actually beating women by a long shot with overspending? Yeah, I didn't think that was coming. I mean, I knew that spending behaviors were generally bad in this country, but all of that definitely takes the cake. In fact, gender, generation, technology, they all have a lot to do with determining how compulsive we become with our spending. It's super insane. And today's guest, Jennifer McDermott, head of communications and a consumer advocate with finder.com has quite the interesting research to back her claims of why we spend more and how this correlates to credit card debt and what makes people more susceptible to credit card fraud. So before we jump in, it's time for that ever so important disclaimer. I really want you guys to become superstars and financial knowledge machines, but I really don't want you to take advice from this show. I want you to use this as an educational tool that provides general hints. I only give advice to clients who I actually work with that I know something about, and I'm guessing you're not one of them. Honestly, I don't think you should take advice from anybody who doesn't know you. If you're looking for an advisor to help walk you through on your journey, go to physicianwellservices.com and we can definitely talk about that. Until then, talk to your legal, tax, or your financial advisor to obtain specific advice. Okay, let's bring Jennifer in and talk about the chronic overspending we have all experienced. Jennifer, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Of course. Well, we met on the floor of FinCon, which was super fun. And we started talking and all of a sudden we were kind of nerding out on some numbers of some of the things you guys are building. I was like, we've got to have you on the show. I've never talked about this stuff. So I want to jump right in and let's talk about impulse spending. Obviously, I'm going to preface a lot of this here as we go along. We're going to talk about impulse spending, credit card rewards, and, and actually credit card fraud. So let's dump into impulse spending. How often do Americans overspend in the research studies that you guys have done? Pretty much all of us are prone to doing this at some point. So when we looked at online spending as well as spending in stores, close to 96% of Americans are prone to, to spending impulsively. Now, when it's online, it's 88.6%, but pretty, pretty high numbers for, for how many people are doing it. And this can happen at any point. You know, there are people who admit to online spending once a day, and then there are people who, who only do it once a month, but it is pretty frequent. Yikes. Once a day, that would be 
a little terrifying to be <laughs> that person or to see that person's finances. Uh, exactly. In your studies, did you guys figure out what are these people actually splurging on? And if it's everyone, I mean, I can I know where I kind of splurge on, but I'm curious, like, where does everyone else kind of splurge on? Please make me feel normal. <laughs> you are normal. You absolutely are normal. But you know, we can all we can all be better. The average amount that people are spending per session is eighty one dollars and seventy five cents. These things could be clothes, it could be a big food purchase, concert tickets, you name it. But basically, I think what was really interesting about the figures were looking at the triggers. So it's not necessarily the item that people are attracted to, it's a certain trigger that makes them purchase impulsively. So the number one trigger was missing out on a deal. So seeing those big sale signs and limited time only, those kind of things inspire us to buy. So it doesn't really matter the item, it's the fact that we feel like we're going to have FOMO, we're going to miss out if we don't purchase now. After that was there's no good reason not to make the purchase. So that kind of why not treat yourself type mentality. Being unsure about the purchase, people worry that, you know, it might not be there tomorrow. So not sure I can always return it. That's another trigger. And then feeling pressured to make the purchase, whether it's by a friend you're shopping with, or, you know, we've all been in stores before and had those pushy clerks telling us we look great in an item and, and we should buy it now. And that's not a trigger, but the least likely one. That's interesting. So if, if someone told me I look good in something, I might buy, actually buy it. It, that, works. That, that, it works. That, that, that really doesn't happen, unfortunately. So <laughs> if, we, if we're looking at the like FOMO is a big deal and then like the, the YOLO mentality is a big deal. And now I've talked on actually on some other episodes about just looking at what other people are doing and what other people are buying. And it, and it makes sense, but it's it's weird that kind of like the number one thing was the marketing pitch of it, of like, this is the sale. I, I, I kind of figured it was kind of like the, maybe your number two or choice, but it was how they reference it. And obviously there's, you know, billions of dollars that goes into research and marketing and trying to figure out human emotion and behavior. Was it more of a male thing or a female thing? Was it by region? Is it people on the wrong coast? Which I identify that as everyone east of... Nevada? <laughs> or is it like an age thing? Like, I'm, I'm curious, like, where, you know, wh where did this kind of play out? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. Um, the numbers are pretty close. I mean, it's something that we're all really prone to do, whether we're um, male, female, older, from a younger generation. Interestingly, men, I think people often think that women are more, you know, susceptible to impulsive shopping and can't help themselves in the store. But actually, more men than women admitted to impulsively spending. The figures there were 67% of men admit to it compared to women. And that's looking at, at just online. And then men were actually more than double as likely than women to have a daily impulsive shopping. So you asked earlier about the frequency. Wow. So women actually do impulsive shop, but they're less likely to do it at the frequency that men do. Um, and men also spend more money on the impulsive shopping session. So women are spending on average $70, close to $71 on their impulsive shopping, whereas men are spending $105, just over $105. So um, a significant difference there in terms of, of expenditure as well. 
And when we're looking at age, it's millennials. Millennials are the most likely to have a daily online shopping habit. And, you know, you can put that down to social media and, and how the keeping up with the Joneses has, I guess, been proliferated with Instagram and, and other social media channels and young generation feeling they need to keep up. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot on a previous show with Sarah Falah, the author of The Next Millionaire Next Door on keeping up with the Joneses. So for those listening, if you haven't listened to that show, it's, it's a really good one. I actually, you know, hearing you say this, I think it's funny because I would have thought it was males that, and, and, and I know I've read the post, but I actually thought it was males that would overspend or impulse, excuse me, impulse shop because mm -hmm. we don't ever have the like, at least... I'm thinking of the females that I know in my life and the males that I know in my life. The females are very driven. They're smart, but they're like, I'm going to the mall to do this, or I'm going to go here to buy this. Like, it's not like so much of an impulse. Whereas like, I'm like, I never want to shop. So if I see something, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it fits in with what I want at the time. But I would consider almost all of my shopping impulse shopping at that mm -hmm. point, because I don't ever think like I need to go shop. That isn't just how I think. So I don't know, maybe it's the, the bias on my side, but you guys did something interesting and you actually pulled the emotion around impulse shopping. So what'd you guys uh, find there? Yeah, we were really interested um, once we sort of delved into the triggers for impulse shopping, we were really interested in what people were feeling after the fact. So are we happy with, with our impulse purchases? And what we found was no. The main emotion people are feeling after impulse spending is feelings of regret. So that's 44.5% of people who impulse shop. That's the number one thing they're feeling after they've spent their money. Um, following that is contentment. So there are people who are impulse shopping and maybe it gives them that rush and they are addicted into that new purchase. So that was following closely behind at, at 42%. And then 31% felt indifferent, so it didn't really bother them. Maybe you mentioned when you go shopping, it's not really planned, so you, you don't really see it as an impulse shopping, but it hasn't been planned. It is on the spur of the moment, so you don't really think about it once the, you've made the purchase. You walk away, you've got a new top, whatever. There's that indifference. And then this is a bit surprising and close to 20%, so 18.9%, felt as though they didn't have enough um, money after they'd spent. So they were worried about their rent, um, tuition, loan repayments, or something else they actually needed the money for. So I guess that, that ties into those feelings of regret, but there's actually that concern that they've spent money they didn't, they didn't really have the money for. That actually ties into what I'm thinking with millennials as well, right? Mm. The ones that have all that student debt burden. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, the Gen Xers that have it. It's the, you know, some Gen Ys, but also some millennials. So I, yeah, I think that actually makes sense. Absolutely. And then finally, 10% of people experienced a fight with a spouse or family member. So there's some real tension there when it comes to impulsive spending. Um, we see a lot of other studies around financial infidelity and people, you know, we make a joke about people hiding purchases from their partners, but yeah, it actually can lead to, to tension in a relationship for 10% of people. Yeah, that makes sense. I've actually hidden a, a purchase from my wife before and it's only the Christmas present. She listens. She's my biggest forced fan is what I, <laughs> I, I called on the show, but I, I do it in every once in a while. I say, hey, honey, what do you want for Christmas? And then I, I end up usually doing something, but then I always get something different. I have my other card that I use to do it so she can't see because she <laughs> houses like all of our stuff, the Amazon, everything. So it's like she knows everything I order. So it's, it's hard to hide things, but uh, I only do it at Christmas. So when we talked about impulse shopping here at the beginning and I was like, well, I know what I splurge on. And this is kind of the next piece here is cost of convenience. Some people sit here and be like, oh, you're a planner. You should 
never have problems with finances. It's like, no, I'm, I'm human too. Like I still, maybe I don't blow my finances up and have it be horrible, but you know, I still impulse stuff and I'm sure my wife does as well. But one of the things that I impulse is I'm working really hard and I don't necessarily want to go make something for dinner or for lunch. And so I will go out to eat or have something potentially delivered if my wife gets home and she doesn't want to cook and I don't want to cook, then, oh, look, it's Postmates getting delivered. So that would be kind of my main thing. But let's talk about cost of convenience spending. What is that technically considered? What falls into that bucket? And how much are people spending on it? Sure. So we looked at um, convenience spending, you know, I think Postmates, Uber Eats, a whole bunch of those type of services. Anything that you could do yourself, but you were paying somebody else to do is what we would call falls under the cost, the convenience bucket. Almost half of Americans are spending on services such as these. So 46% of people um, in our studies that they spend on services such as um, delivery services, driving, handiwork around the house, whether it's cleaners or someone to, to come and put up a shelf, pet needs, so groomers and walkers, and subscription boxes we also put into this, into this bucket. So things such as like HelloFresh, where you get all your food and recipes mm. cut up and, and portioned out. Yeah, we tried Blue Apron once and it was fun for a little bit. And then you realize like it's not that cost effective and it doesn't, <laughs> it didn't save that much time. And then it was like, ah, we're not doing that anymore. So I'm curious. Okay. So impulse shopping was actually more male driven. Is mm-hmm. cost of convenience, is there a male, female, or again, a region or age? Is there differences here? Yes. So again, the men spend more on cost of convenience. Oh, we're over two guys. <laughs> So they're spending more than 50% more than women on food delivery. Food delivery is a very popular one. So I feel like you're are- saying that because I told you what mine was. <laughs> the, the numbers don't lie, Ryan. That's um, a numbers guy. <laughs> I agree. Um, so when it comes to food delivery, they're not they're not too different. Men will spend on average seventy seven dollars, where women are spending fifty one dollars, and this is on a monthly basis. Whereas when it comes to subscription services, so your HelloFresh, Rent the One Ray, Barkbox, men are spending a lot more. So women are spending seven dollars, and men are spending twenty four dollars on a monthly basis. So you know, over three times the amount. Was there an age difference between the cost and convenience? Because now I can kind of see technology playing a big role in cost of convenience like these some of these things so i could see millennials maybe being higher no, that's correct the way i would walk through this in my head is that is that correct that's correct yeah gen y the most likely to spend money on the convenience services so they're spending on average 41 dollars per month compared to baby boomers who are spending 20 dollars per month and gen x are 13 i think that technology has a lot to do with the younger generation leading the charge and convenience services they are very used to instant gratification they're very used to having you know many many apps on their phone so a car is a tap away um, a new meal is a tap away um, they're probably less inclined. They don't really come from that generation of you cook everything from scratch. I think that's where the subscription boxes have have become kind of fun lately because it's bringing back those cooking skills and it's making it a bit fun. But I think that technology is a huge driver of Gen Y being the biggest generation to to use these services. Yeah. I mean, that makes logical sense. So Mm -hmm. we've covered impulse shopping and Mm -hmm. now we've talked about some cost of convenience factors. Let's go into those that chase points. And Mm. I had a show with Holly Johnson a while back talking about credit card rewards. And Mm -hmm. it was a phenomenal show because she is so knowledgeable on 
if you're going to shop, here's the places and the cards you should use it on in order to do these purchases. But I look at it and I, I actually get this all the time with clients. Oh, well, I use a card for everything because I get points. Sometimes I look at this and I say, you know, the best way to, to save money, a lot of times it's, you know, I, I look at, you know, there's credit card debt and other things. I think first, if you have credit card debt, don't chase points. It's just ridiculous. You're trying to get two points to pay them 20%. But from those that even pay off their debt, if you don't go after the two cents on the dollar, the 2% cash back or whatever that might be, you and you save the dollar, that's your best return on it. But that's clearly after reading your guys's case study, not the case that anyone else thinks that way. So how many people are like spending and in, in accumulating points unnecessarily? Sure. So almost one in three, it's almost one in three. So 29.2% of Americans are using their credit card solely for the points that they're generating. So this means that they might not need to purchase something, but like you said, think, oh, I can get the points and, and not actually weighing up the value benefit of the points versus having that money still in their pocket. That's really interesting. Yeah, you, you had some stats and I want to read off two of them here because I, I thought it was pretty amazing. It was estimated $175 billion is spent chasing points mm-hmm. and 29% have spent money using a credit card just because it was a rewards program attached to it. And that just blows my mind. Do you know in your guys' study here what most people were likely to spend like the money on? Like what were they what were they spending? frivolously chasing points for? Sure. So the number one thing that people are buying to chase those points are clothing and and accessories. So that was 89.4%, which when you think about it, probably aren't necessarily necessities. And then followed by food and drinks and then household items. But clothes and accessories, they're probably the things that are are totaling the highest amount and, and generate the biggest amount of points, I would say. What's weird is when I looked at your guys' studies, And I said, okay, if we were trying to analyze the average person and the, you know, clothing, I knew clothing was, was first because I've, I've read it, but I thought maybe that would have been due to impulse shopping, right. In, in seeing how these could be interrelated. And it probably comes down to these deals, like, you know, the FOMO or the, you know, oh, this is 30% off or buy one, get one 20% off and things like that. So, uh, you know, I was kind of expecting it, but at the same time, I'm not a, I don't buy really clothes. So um, you know, I, I, it's still hard for me to associate with it, but is this a male female thing or a region or an age thing or, or how does, how does like, wh- how do those numbers come out? Do guys mess up again here? <laughs> I wish I had a different story for you, but yes, men sure. are slightly, <laughs> slightly more inclined to be chasing points than women. So 27.6% of women use their cards solely to get the points compared to 30.9% of men. Um, so those are quite, quite close figures. It's when we look at how much they're spending that it's mm. quite a difference. Men are spending almost double that of women. So women are spending, when they're chasing these points, this is, we're talking over a period of time, women are spending just over $1,800 where men are spending just over 3000 So it's quite a significant difference. So it was a double whammy. We mm-hmm. screwed up not only once, but twice. Good job, <laughs> <right>. guys. <laughs> big bummer. Okay. And that begs the question to like, are these programs actually worth it? I look at it and say, if you're going to spend and it's, it's actually a necessity and you have the ability to pay it off in full, like you could have paid this in cash and you 
have some self-restraint, yes, you can use a credit card and do this. I personally, I put everything on a credit card because I, I know I, one, I have it in cash. I could pay for it any time. And two, the points are nice when I know I'm never going to carry a balance. And I, I do have self-discipline to not blow this up. But did you guys ask anyone or, or look at the details and see like, were these actually worth it for people? We didn't go into the individual programs they're using. And I guess it can be quite subjective. But as you said, if people aren't paying off their credit cards in full, then they're not getting the value from these programs. To get any value, you have to be really gaming the system. And it takes a lot of understanding the different values of things, understanding different terms and conditions. You can definitely get a lot of benefits from rewards programs. There's no doubt about it. But if you don't have the capacity to pay back what you're charging, then you are, you are losing for sure. Yeah, you instantly basically lose. So let's say that um, I fall in this category that I will use credit cards. Is there a program that's kind of a favorite with all you you guys there that analyzes stuff that you're like, hey, this is a cool app or program or whatever it might be to, to track something? Yeah, there are so many different apps. There's always an app for everything that can help you track them. So uh, Wallaby is one favorite of ours. So you can connect your credit card accounts to, to track your spending, how much you owe, your total on credit, and when your next bill is due. So it really keeps you organized and it gives you real-time alerts on where you can shop to maximize credit card points as well. It can categorize your purchases. So looking at what you're most likely to spend. So, you know, if you're spending a certain amount at the grocery store every week, it will help you maximize those purchases that you're making every week anyway, to make sure you're getting the best cash back or points back on those. That's interesting. I mean, I know there's all sorts of AI and, and things like that, but Wallaby, I've actually never heard of it. So I'll, I'll actually go check it out and do some, some due diligence on it myself. So we've talked about how people spend, where they're spending and, and some of these, these numbers and, and going into it, but we haven't talked about the scams, the, the mm. massive amounts of fraud that's out there. I've had two clients in 2018 um, be, you know, the victims of fraud. I was the victim of fraud in 2016 with one of our cards. They, they ended up charging $400 within about 20 minutes to two different gas stations in town mm. until the credit card company called me and was like, are you doing this? I'm like, have I ever spent more than just gas at a gas station? Like, no, that's not me. Yeah. So what are some of the big stats around credit card fraud, credit card scams? It's very, very common. So nearly 42% of US cardholders have fallen victim to credit card fraud. And it does come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. So it could be somebody trying to charge a card. It could be, you know, to the extent of ID theft, but it is extensive and it's resulted in an estimated, from our, from our study, $136 billion in collective fraudulent charges. So you had 400 here. Multiply that across all the people that have experienced it and all the money that has been fraudulently charged. It's a lot, significant amount. So that $100 billion that you just said, is that per year? That is, yes, in the 12-month period that we conducted this study. That is insane how much mm -hmm. money that is. What are some of the ways to find out if you've been a victim of fraud, right? So I wouldn't have known this unless, you know, Chase called me mm -hmm. or, um, or, you know, or, or whatever bank or, or institution you're using maybe could call. But other than hoping and praying that they're going to call you, like what are some of the other ways to find out if you're a victim of fraud? 
checking your statements. I think most banks have apps that can attach your account. I think that people should be very vigilant with checking their statements. So we actually asked people who had experienced fraud how they found out. We were really fascinated to find out how people were being alerted to this. And 46% of people were notified by their banks. That's a, that's a good amount, but that's still not accounting for a lot of people if they hadn't checked there could have been charges that would have gone unchecked and could have led to larger amounts being taken. So 46% checked their own statements and saw that there was some unusual activity being conducted. And then 8% had to suffer the humiliation, I guess, of being declined um, at checkout. And if you don't have a, another card, imagine with your, your groceries, you have the kids waiting as well. And then to be told that your card's declined and that's because there's been a block put on it or it's been maxed out from fraudulent behaviour. So it's, it's a smaller amount, but it's definitely not something that anybody wants to experience. No, that would be terrible. I look at it and I, I actually use Credit Karma. It's the free app that monitors credit. And um, I put it on my phone and my wife's phone, logged us in. And when Credit Karma alerts and gets an alert of like a new card. So this wouldn't help if someone like copied your card or you lost your wallet or whatever. But if someone tries to open up credit in your name, it's actually alerts you really quick and it's free in order to, I know there's tons of paid ones. What are some of the ways that to protect yourself from fraud? I guess, you know, I mentioned ensuring that you have apps and you're checking your statements regularly. That's one of the best things that you can do. I think being aware of the type of scams that are that are out there, what type of phishing scams, you know, looking out for emails, if anything looks suspicious, whether you receive an email asking you for your details, check with the retailer or check with your bank if this is something that's legitimate. Log out of your accounts always. Um, there are a lot of things now in the digital age that make it as convenient as possible for us to online bank and shop. Um, you can set your, your details in an online store so that it's just one click to purchase, which the retailers obviously love. I just say never, ever have your details stored anywhere. It takes an extra minute if you're purchasing something to enter your details again, but it just means that your data is not stored anywhere um, that could be hacked. Those are some of the, the, the major things. I think shredding your documents, your important documents with, with information, it can seem a bit next level, but it doesn't take long. A shredder is so inexpensive and it just means that, you know, anybody who's suspicious coming past, finding a credit card statement, finding your details, that they don't have access to that information. Yeah. I mean, it's normal business practice for me to shred stuff, but um, even before, uh, you know, my, my own firm, you know, even in college i was that guy that liked to shred it because i mean you never know where stuff's gonna go um and yeah. always always kind of worry me i'd be more comfortable with online stuff but yes logging out it definitely makes sense but if the banks are only catching this half the time that's really scary because it's the other half like you're catching it on your own and most people are oblivious to this part of me was saying was hoping and i knew you wouldn't but when you say like what are ways to protect yourself you're just like oh don't impulse shop and i'm gonna be like yes <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that wasn't going to come out. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people hear more about you guys and what you're doing? And just tell us a little bit more about Finder. Sure. So Finder is a personal finance comparison website. So what we do is provide comparisons across personal finance products from credit cards and personal loans, money transfers, shopping deals, you name it, any kind of personal finance product. We, we give consumers all the different options for them to make the best decisions with their money. 
What we do is do a lot of these studies to try and delve into our spending and saving behaviors so that we can help people identify different problems and, and you know, help them get out of debt and help them make better choices all around. Yeah, you guys have tons of these um, on here. These are just a couple that I was like, I've never talked on these, and these were really interesting. So, of course, I'll link to these in the show notes, uh, financialresidency.com. But thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much, Ryan. It was fun. In our journal club, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site urgentcarecareer.com titled 14 Financial Sins. My discussion of the article is going to be somewhat brief compared to normal, as I'd really love for you all to go and check it out. I think it was really well written, and it's actually done in kind of a short burst form. In this article, the author discusses how they see 14 financial sins that physicians do to keep them poor. So let's run through the list. And again, I'm encouraging you to go check it out at urgentcarecareer.com. So the first financial sin is buying too much house. Second, not investing your money. Third, not knowing how much you actually need. Four, cashing out retirement plans. Oof, that's that's a bad one. Don't do that. Five, becoming debt dependent. Six, inadequate financial buffer. Seven, saving too little, eight, expensive lifestyle. That's a killer. Nine, being underinsured. 10, believing your job is actually secure. 11, not understanding your investments. 12, not diversifying properly. 13, retirement planning too late. I see that one a ton. And 14, financial secrecy. That was a good one. Go check it out. So in my experience, I have seen all of those things. And sadly, I've seen some of people actually have four or five, six or more of these financial sins. I think out of the list of 14, the biggest issue I have is with the expensive lifestyle. Um, Obviously, don't cash out your retirement plans. That's like a big no-no. But the expensive lifestyle, and I think that's one that we can all change or fix. And we've talked about this so much on the show about lifestyle creep after training, But for those, and we haven't maybe talked enough about this, and we should probably do a whole show on this, but for those that have been out of training for a while, it's going to be really hard to scale back. And if you don't see the writing on the wall, or if you haven't truly come to that conclusion on your own, you might be in for a lot of pain down the road. So don't let your current self rob your future self. Just because you're a physician or you're married to one doesn't mean you have to spend like the world thinks you should. Do what makes you happy in the now, but just don't keep robbing your future self to get it done. Again, this is a great article. I encourage you all to check it out by going to urgentcarecareer.com. Well, that was a really fun episode with Jennifer, and I hope you guys all enjoyed the interview with Jennifer as well as the Journal Club. So here are some things to think about. Jennifer shared stats that brought us to the conclusion that Americans are generally just really bad at spending and overspending at that. That makes us all prone to it at some point, all of us. So it's a good idea to know the reasons behind the who, the what, the why, and the how we create this reality for ourselves. To make us feel quote unquote normal, Jennifer said that the average purchase was $81 that were people spending during a purchasing session. Triggers like 
pressure points, including FOMO or buy one, get one free or pushy clerks or the YOLO mentality have a lot to do with your habits and your spending and your mentality. Yeah, that has a lot to do with it too, but it's not all your fault. There's billions of dollars that go into marketing research to try to figure out human behavior and human emotion. We're all being tricked, ladies and gents. And it's no wonder it's kind of hard to keep things in check. And I'm partly kidding with that, but I'm partly not. You do have a choice to buy or not buy. And it may be hard, really hard, but it's still a choice. We also talked about gender and how that plays a role and that generally men over women are placed on top of that sliding scale for spending more on high priced items. Blown away. Absolutely blown away. So ladies, next time that you have a conversation with your spouse or your partner, you can capitalize on that little fact and it's actually well justified and has some proof behind it. Does it really come down to convenience though? And that was actually where I thought it was going to come down to. But in according to Jennifer, she agreed and generations, that was kind of a factor here. And technology had a huge factor to do with it as well. And when you kind of combined all those, the younger generation are more in tune with new apps, the latest funds, styles, and the fastest way to make purchases online. And we're all doing it. And that could be a problem. And then we talk about credit card points. And research has shown that men are using their points more so than women by just a little bit but they're slightly more inclined to be chasing points. And the percentages were 28% women and 30% men. And while that sounds really close, it's when you look at how much they're spending, that's quite different. And men, we are spending double of what women do to chase points. That is a no-no. We do not chase points. So you can definitely get a lot of benefits from the rewards programs. There's no doubt about that. But if you don't have the capacity to pay it back, you know, what you're actually swiping and charging, you're absolutely losing out. So if you can't pay for it in cash, don't buy it. When it comes to credit card fraud, you'll be sure that you need to protect yourself regardless of where you stand. And a few ways is that you should be aware of the type of scams that are out there. So check your statements frequently. Don't store your data anywhere that someone could easily find it. And please shred your documents. So a quick update around the community. We have seen way more activity since the beginning of the year in our Facebook group, which is super exciting. So we've added 100 members, almost 500 posts and comments, according to our Facebook stats, and 90% of our community was active in January. That is super exciting to see. And I love that the community is coming together and we're all helping each other out. So if you haven't joined us, I don't know why not, but come join us at financialresidency.com slash community. Hopefully the show and the community has brought you guys all a lot of value. And I really enjoy your emails that you send me. I've gotten dozens since the year started and it really makes it all worth it. And I'd love to increase our community this year and it's not going to be possible without your help. So it'd be really amazing if you could help spread the word, spread the message by sharing this podcast with other physicians and their families. My second podcast, the Money Care Specialist podcast is growing a ton and I continue to, you know, enjoy creating those financial health assessments for all of you. The numbers are lower than this show, which is expected. So I know many of you haven't found your way over to it. I think you're going to find it really valuable, especially if you find this show valuable as we take the knowledge you're learning here and translate it into your everyday lives. So go check it out and honestly, let me know what you think. Shoot me an email or 
post something in the community. I'd love to hear some feedback. Lastly, we just turned the flash briefing that we had in Alexa into a podcast called Physician Finance Minute. So if you want a daily digestible tip, yes, daily, that will help you stay on track to crush your debt or understand cash flow, or learning how to invest, getting the appropriate insurance, or just gain more confidence when it comes to your finances, go check it out. It's literally, it's free. It's only a minute a day and it's called Physician Finance Minute. There you have it. This was such a great show. I had a ton of fun. I hope you guys learned and enjoyed it. Next week, we have another amazing guest on, Joel Larsgaard with the recently rebranded How To Money Top 5 Investing Podcast on iTunes. It is a really fun show. He is an awesome guy. This is going to be one that you won't want to miss. So until next time, cheers. Cheers.